Would you take your Bible and join me in Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6 this morning, we're going to look together at verses 16 through 18. We're continuing our walk together through Matthew's gospel, and specifically we're looking at the section of text in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 that's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And here we are in chapter 6 specifically looking at how we should understand our practice of righteousness or maybe a better way to say it would be our private and public devotion as the case may be to the Lord based on our relationship with Him. If you found your place there in Matthew chapter 6. Let me read to you the text in its entirety beginning in verse 16. Jesus says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward. I remember the conversation, the discussion, very clearly. It was during my first semester of my master's study at seminary, and I was in a class that was known as spiritual disciplines, spiritual formations. And that class, and that class together, we had been reading through Richard Foster's classical Christian work on spiritual formation or spiritual disciplines, called Celebration of Disciplines. And near the end of the semester, we got to the chapter on fasting. I don't, I don't know how it is in, in Louisiana, but about the only time we fasted in Arkansas was the time we went to sleep at night until we woke up in the morning at breakfast and broke the fast. And so that was a little bit of an interesting discussion, even for those that have been called into ministry trying to understand what is the role of fasting in my spiritual formation and in my relationship with Christ, because even in the church, that hadn't been talked about. And what the professor said that day at the end of that discussion actually confused me even more. He, he said something along these lines, which, which, by the way, may very well be true, but I don't know that it related to anyone in the classroom or necessarily relates to a whole lot of people as you try to understand the teaching on fasting and its significance and importance. He said, well, if you've got a medical condition like diabetes, he said, fasting might be a little bit like handling snakes, handling poisonous snakes. And uh, the face that Will Spivey just made in the sanctuary was about the same face that I made in the room because I had no better understanding of what to do with fasting after he said that than before. Probably of all of the things that we think about, when we think about the spiritual disciplines and our growth and our godliness and our walk and our growing close to the Lord, and by those we're talking about prayer and Bible intake and worship and solitude and journaling and whatever else we might put in there, fasting may be the one, and this is what that day taught me, fasting may be the one that as Christians we understand the least and we practice even, even more seldom. I would say this, one of the classes that I taught my first two years on faculty at New Orleans during the first two fall semesters was our spiritual formations one class. We go through the same process. And we do that for a reason, and I think it's a good reason. Sometimes we believe, I think, that for those that have been called to ministry, the time when they're going to be the closest to the Lord is when they're in seminary, right? You're studying the Bible. But I will say, I, I found in my life and in my students' life, sometimes that's when you're the farthest away 
And when the most barrier, most uh, the, the biggest barriers, the widest barriers are there, because reading a systematic theology textbook is not the same thing as reading God's Word for personal spiritual growth. And so we also, at the first of the seminary career, we do that, and I was teaching it. Likewise, we got to the chapter on fasting, the week on fasting, and it probably elicits the most consternation and the most amount of argument in the room. But here we approach in Jesus' teaching, the beginning of his public ministry, the first recorded sermon of Jesus that we know of, and he gets to a place where he brings up this discipline of fasting. And so today, I, I want us to look at this and see from this, and, and to some extent with an eye towards all of the Bible, what is it that we can learn? What truths can we say about fasting, its significance, and how it should be employed in the life of the believer? And I'm going to do two things as we do this. We, we need to situate it in the context of what he said in verse 1. And really, if we have to put a statement on what Jesus is saying, is even in our fasting, we need to be careful to not be hypocritical in our practice of righteousness, even that that might relate to our fasting. And the other thing that I want to do today is I want to hold the application. I know this is a little bit unusual, but I want to try to teach through this passage, and I want to hold the application until the end. I promise if you'll stay with me, I will make some very specific applications for us today at the end, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring those, I'm going to hold those until then, because I want us to understand and unpack this perhaps most misunderstood act of devotion and worship to the Lord. That being said, I want us to look at this in three parts. The first part we see all the way back in verse 1, even though it's not a specific part of our passage, because we need to understand what we've called this practice of righteousness before men. Here again, verse 1 of chapter 6 Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Now watch this. For the purpose, that's what it is in Greek. It's a purpose clause. For the purpose of being noticed by them. And I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but just note that he doesn't say that if you practice your righteousness and, and men notice you, that necessarily you're sinning or breaking what he's saying here, but don't do it for the purpose of being noticed by men. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, I know we've gone back to this for about three weeks now, and you're probably, if you've been here, to some extent saying, let's move on already. Why are we going back to verse 1? But it becomes very important to note verse 1 for at least two reasons. Number one, its connection to what's just been said in chapter 5, but also understanding general, verse 1 is the general principle that Jesus is making that then he applies in three specific areas of our worship or devotion to God. Our money, our prayer, and our fasting. So today we're going to see the third of the three of those, but again, we need to be reminded of verse 1 because it's the general principle that then Jesus is specifically applying in our lives. And so I think we do well just, just briefly remind ourselves of a couple questions. Number one, what is the context of Jesus' teaching in verse 1 that we need to be careful, be cautious, watch out for practicing your righteousness before men for the purpose of being noticed by them. Remember again, Jesus here has begun his public ministry. He's there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. And he's up on this mountain. He's gone up. He's seen the crowds. And he's gone up on this mountain that we call the Mount of Beatitudes. And he's called his disciples to him. And he's begun to deliver what we know as his first 
sermon. And he began his first sermon back in chapter 5 with this section of text we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the ones. And then he quickly transitioned and began to talk about really what it looks like for your righteousness, for someone that follows him to have righteousness that exceeds that of the religious elite of that day. Now that was a shocking statement for them to hear because they were not considered, the, the religious of the, of the day, the Pharisees, were not considered unrighteous. They were considered the epitome of righteousness. And so in chapter 5, verses 17 through, 17 through 20, Jesus tells them that unless their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, they will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The question has to arise in their minds, then who in the world can enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is wanting to talk to his followers those that have the king ruling in their hearts now, they're living in the kingdom now, what it looks like to live in light of that truth. And then in six examples, he begins to show them how on their own, he, he presents this level of righteousness, this level of the law, that on their own can never be achieved on their own. That righteousness on their own cannot be achieved. At every turn, what Jesus is doing is he's driving them outside of themselves, outside of their self-righteousness, to someone else to meet that standard for them. In other words, he's trying to cause them to despair and run to him for only what he can give, that type of internal righteousness that exceeds mere external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And he ends chapter 5 with this almost daunting statement. You, you therefore will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's showing them this inner righteousness, this inner holiness that only comes through faith in Jesus, the King ruling in your heart. And then from there in chapter 6, he transitions and begins to show them, okay, if you have this internal righteousness, if you're living in the kingdom now by means of the King, what should your devotion to the King on a daily basis look like? What should you, if I can say it this way, I don't mean it in a negative connotation, what should your religion look like? How should you practice that righteousness? What should that devotion be like? And in chapter 1 he says, well, you need to be careful. You don't practice that type of devotion before men for the purpose of men seeding you. That's the context. Now, here's the content. We need to make a very important distinction, maybe two very important distinctions. What is this content? Notice that he never says, don't practice your righteousness before men. In other words, he, can't, he, he doesn't forbid, prohibit it forever happening publicly. If that's the case, we've already broke that command multiple times today. So he doesn't forbid assembling publicly to worship, to, to, to carry out a devotion to the Lord. But he does say when you do it, when you practice your devotion, be careful, beware of the way that you do that. That is a very important command. And he says certainly when you do it, make sure the purpose of your doing it is not to be a spectacle before men. Not so men will then look at you and say, look how spiritual that person is. Just so you know, if you're practicing your devotion in such a way so that men will see how spiritual you are, you aren't very spiritual. That's the point that Jesus is making to some extent, right? And so instead, we don't want the reward. We don't want the praise of men. However we do it, we do it because we want the Father to reward us. I, I believe genuinely the reward that he's talking about from the Father here is actually grow. What's the result? What's the result and reward God paying you back for you having genuine private devotion to Him that comes from that internal righteousness. 
The, the reward, I think, is the devotion itself. Your love and relationship and closeness to the Father and growth and spiritual, spiritual likeness itself. So the idea that Jesus is saying is your devotion, whether it's practiced privately or publicly, the point is that it shouldn't be public. Even if your devotion is public, it shouldn't be public. That's what Jesus is here saying. And so really we come to this, again, overall statement that we must guard against being hypocritical in our practice of righteousness. And then beginning in verse 16, he gives us the third of the three ways that this is applied. It's been applied to almsgiving or giving to the poor, your financial means and your prayer life. How should you not pray and how should you pray? And here finally in verse 16, it's regarding fasting. How should you not pray and then how should you fast? How should you practice your devotion as it relates to your fasting? So we not only see the practice of righteousness, but we also see the problem of hypocrisy, what we might call barren worship. Listen again to verse 16, the words of Jesus in verse 16. Whenever you fast, notice that there's an assumption that you're going to. That's something that a lot of times American Christians throw out the door. Whenever you fast, there's an assumption that at some point in your life, at some point in your Christian walk, you are going to fast. Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. This section of text follows very closely what we saw is Jesus was applying verse 1 to almsgiving and Jesus was applying verse 1 to prayer. It's the pattern of here's what you don't do to be seen by men but here's what you do instead to be rewarded by the Father. He follows that pattern here. And the idea, the idea is avoiding doing this practice of righteousness for the purpose of public exploitation or publicly being seen by people. Just, just for a moment, let's talk about how we understand fasting in the Bible holistically. I think that will make sense, if you will, in order to understand how we don't practice uh, fasting as a hypocrite. We need to understand the overall teaching of Scripture on fasting for a moment. First thing that we need to understand is Jesus, and the Bible as a whole does in several places, it's not exhaustive, but in several places, does teach at least implicitly on fasting. You remember Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm just for time. I'm going to give you an overview. What did Jesus do before he began his ministry as he was led out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted? Well, he fasted. There seemed to be some element of connecting of fasting. And by that, we're talking about the neglecting of normal food, normal eating, that normal practice for the purpose of explicitly being focused on the Lord. And in this case, in Jesus' ministry, it seemed, if I can say it this way, it might be a little bit uh, outside of the chronology of things, but it seems to be as he was preparing himself for what I might call gospel ministry or ministry. He prepared by fasting. Then fast forward to chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel that we haven't gotten to, verses 14 through 17. Jesus has an interesting conversation with John the Baptist's disciples. They came to him and they say, hey, look, look we're John's followers and we fast, but we notice your, your followers don't. So at least at this point in Jesus' disciples' life, they had not begun to fast. And Jesus gives a very interesting answer. He says, well, while the bridegroom is with 
the groomsmen, so to speak, they don't fast. They celebrate. But then when he's gone, then they will fast. And what Jesus seems to be saying is, I'm with them right now. They're doing ministry with me. I'm not gone yet. It's not time for them to fast, to have that time of focusing on me and what I've called them to do. But there's a time coming when they will. But fast forward to the book of Acts, even after Jesus ascends. It's not an uncommon, it's not an unknown practice in the church. We see in the first commissioning in Acts chapter 13 of the first Christian missionaries a reference to prayer and fasting. Paul and Barnabas were commissioned out of the church to go on the first missionary journey out of the context of a fasting session. So again, we have preparation and selection of people for what? Gospel ministry. And then as you fast forward to Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul, as he's going around near the end of his first missionary journey to the churches that they've started, going back through and appointing elders, pastors in those churches, guess what they're doing as they're appointing pastors for those churches? They're praying and fasting to find God's selection for those that would carry out this gospel ministry in those locations. So we do see holistically, if you will, fasting in the New Testament. Most of the time it seems to be related to gospel ministry, preparation for gospel ministry, selecting those for gospel ministry. Not saying that's the only time that it happens, but we certainly see it in that context. Now, in a Jew's world, when and how was the teaching on fasting connected? Well, primarily there was a connection, watch this, between the concept of the Day of the Atonement, the Old Testament, and fasting. As a matter of fact, if you look with me in Leviticus, you might want to turn here, Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 29. I'll explain for those of you that don't know in just a moment what the Day of Atonement was, but the Day of Atonement was a very important day in the history and the redemption of Israel in the Old Testament, and it was something they were to do annually, every year, so that their sins would be atoned for, and this is before Jesus came in the flesh and died on the cross, and this is what we read in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. This shall be a permanent statue for you. In the seventh month of the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and do, no, uh, do not do any work, whether the native or the alien who so, sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse, for, for, for to cleanse you. You will be clean for all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your so, souls. It is a permanent statute. This Day of Atonement in Israel's history, even though it's not explicitly said, they understood verses 29 through 31, and specifically verse 31, to include fasting. You do no work, it's a solemn assembly, that also means that you don't eat. And I'll tell you what else was required of Israel during the Day of Atonement. They couldn't wash their face and they couldn't anoint their head. You know why? Because washing your face and anointing your head was a symbol of joy and a joyous occasion in their, in their context. And the Day of Atonement in some ways was supposed to be seen as anything but joyous. It was a bloody, gross, hard day when they were reminded of their sins and their wickedness before the Lord and the loss of life that was required for their sins to be forgiven. They weren't supposed to be joyous. They were supposed to be solemn. 
So that day was associated with fasting, and also it was forbidden that they anoint their head. You remember what the Day of Atonement was once a year, the high priest, in this case Aaron, had to take a bull and sacrifice and cleanse himself so that he would be purified and he could go behind the veil to where the mercy seat was, the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat of God on the altar is. And he had to take the blood of another lamb, another goat, in with him. Then he would there pour on the mercy seat. That blood would be spilled on the mercy seat so that God would be, I'm going to use this word, his wrath would be appeased and the sins of the entire camp of Israel would be atoned for for at least one more year. But that didn't end it. But when the high priest would emerge out behind the veil, he himself would be bloody, his garments would be bloody, his hands would be bloody, and then he would take the live goat. This is where we get the name scapegoat. And he would take this scapegoat outside the camp, and he would lay his hands on that goat, and he would whisper the sins of Israel into the ear of that goat, and then that goat was led outside the camp into the wilderness to where it was. the idea was it would wander around, never come back into the camp, and it would die in the wilderness, and there the sins of Israel for at least one more year would die with it. That was the Day of Atonement, and they had to do it every year. And that's how their sins and, and, and were forgiven and, and atoned for. And so on that day, there was a close connection between, between not eating and not anointing your head with oil. Because it was a serious day that was to be taken serious. Now, the Pharisees, the way they began to fast is even more than that. They had two weekly fasts that they would engage in every week, Mondays and Thursdays. Every Monday and Thursday, they would fast. And the hypocrites, which here he's probably referring to the Pharisees, what they would do when they fasted. So the idea was there was a connection between not eating, fasting, and not anointing your head with oil on the Day of Atonement. So from then, the logical connection was, anytime we fast then, God must not want us to look happy and joyous. He must want us to look gloomy. So what they would do is they would even go over the top on those two days every week so that everybody knew they were depriving themselves of food. So that everyone knew how spiritual these guys were. As a matter of fact, the tradition says that not only would they not wash their face and anoint their head, which would show joy, what they would actually do is they would go above and beyond to try to make themselves even look more gloomy. The idea is, listen to this, get the hypocrisy in this. And you remember what a hypocrite is, someone that wears a mask, a Greek actor. right? That's where that idea comes from. They're not the same person on the outside that they are on the inside. So how the hypocrites would do this is they would literally do all they can to, the, the word that's used means to darken their face so that they would shine before men. Talk about the irony of that. They were making themselves unrecognizable from how they looked the other five days of the week so that they would be seen by men. That's what's happening. That's the context of what Jesus is saying here. In a moment we're going to talk about how we must not do that. But essentially, Jesus is saying if, if that's what you do, if that's the practice you go through with fasting, and men see you, you can go ahead. The word that's used for reward is the word that we get. It's an it's a economic term that means receipt. He says, go ahead and turn in that receipt. You've been paid in full for the whole reason why you fasted. It did you no good before God, but don't get mad about it because you didn't want anything before God, you wanted it before men. 
And he says, so turn it in. You've had your reward. But don't expect a, for, a further reward from God. You know another way to say it? If I can say it this way. When he's talking about being, being careful here with the problem of hypocrisy in our practice of fasting, our practice of righteousness. Why did I put barren worship? Well, here's why. If you parse out what Jesus is saying here is, therefore, if that was an act of worship, who is an act of worship supposed to be to and before? God. Right? Because anyone else's the object of worship is what? We have a term for it in the Bible. Idolatry, even if it's yourself. And so what Jesus is saying is if this was an act of your worship and your purpose was to be seen by men and really the point of worship is to be before God, then you might as well understand that your worship was nothing more than empty. It was meaningless, empty worship. You might as well have not done it if you're going to try to call it worship. So the implication here, or what we're understanding here, is our aim when we practice our righteousness and specifically our fasting must not be being seen and rewarded by man in our fasting and acts of devotion to God. So that's the picture of what was happening and what they weren't to do. But Jesus never leaves it there. You've got to thank Jesus for this. He's pretty overt. He's pretty clear. He's pretty obvious. Don't do that. There's a picture of those that are doing that. So what should I do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what you should do instead. Verses 17 and 18. The private life of devotion before the Father. He says, but you. I, I appreciate that so much in some ways that should have been an encouragement, even that, to his followers. There's the picture of the hypocrites that they would have gotten immediately. Okay? They know who they mean by that. That picture is clear. And Jesus looks at his followers. Get the scene here for just a moment. Jesus looks at his followers that are there on the foot of the Mount of Beatitude, probably with the Sea of Galilee behind them, with the hustle and bustle of normal life going on. And Jesus looks at his followers and he says, But you. There's great implication with that. If you, look, we might act hypocritical sometimes, but hear what he's saying. If you genu genuinely know Jesus, if the king is ruling in your heart, and you're a resident of the kingdom now, understand you are not and therefore should not live like a hypocrite. The hypocrites do this, but you. That's not what you do. Instead, here's the picture that he gives. Command, if you will, that he gives to them of how they should practice their fasting. This type of private devotion. But you, when you fast, again, an assumption that's going to happen, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I, I, I can't help but think about Holly's experience when I read this of fasting in a class when she was in college, she went to a, a school, a college that was a Christian college, a Baptist college in Arkansas, and I don't know if it's a spiritual disciplines class or, or a ministry class, but they gave them the assignment of fasting. And they were to keep a journal about the experience. Again, I, I'm not to beleaguer that professor, but I, I think when that happens again, we miss Jesus' words here. It's not an assignment in college. It's not some experiment to see how you feel. It's devotion, it's growth, it's looking to, it's reward from Him 
that he's very careful to say, be careful when you do it, and here's how you do it to not be noticed by, by men. Again, what we see here is following that same pattern. Obviously, there's a little bit of a, of a divorce from that pattern, if I can say it, a little bit of a divergence from that pattern. But Jesus, again, gives the what not to do, and then here's what to do, so that your reward would be in full and would be from the Father only. And so he really gives two, two thoughts here that I would just point out to you. Notice that he says the way that you should do it is that you should fast by anointing your head and washing your face. We've already talked about this a little bit. You understand the Jews' connection with fasting and not anointing your head, specifically as it relates washing your face and, and anointing your head, specifically as it relates to the Day of Atonement. We also know what the hypocrites did. They took that and they made it the blanket rule for any time you fast, therefore, don't anoint your head, don't wash your face, but make yourself even look more gloomy. But here Jesus says, Jesus says, but instead what you need to do is when you fast, you need to do the exact opposite. You need to change the culture. And I don't know that he's necessarily talking about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement's not the only day for the Christian. We don't fast on the day. Sometimes, to some extent, the Day of Atonement for the believer was 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to the cross and substituted himself for my place and your place. And, and he was put in the, in the tomb and literally, historically, three days later, rose again defeating sin and death once and for all. And so, therefore, anybody that trusts Jesus and places saving faith in Him and His finished work on the cross and His resurrection, the Day of Atonement's in the past. Jesus doesn't do that every day. He doesn't do it every year. It's done. It's sealed. It's finished. But in some ways, I guess the Day of Atonement is every day for us because Jesus' mercy, God's mercy and Christ are new for us every day. But I don't know that Jesus is just connecting it to the Day of Atonement, but he's taking that principle that they had, that tradition that they had, and he's flipping it on, it on its head. He said, what you do is you've connected the Day of Atonement to fasting and, and not anointing your head and looking gloomy, but what Jesus says is, anytime you fast, he said, I'm going to tell you to do the opposite. It's a custom. It was grooming, but it was a custom of looking joyous. When you washed your face and put anointed your head, the idea was this person has had something good happen to them. They are filled with joy. This is a great day for them. And Jesus says, when you're fasting, and physically what's going on is you're depraving yourself of something. You're being deprived of something. And he says, but on that day, when you're depriving yourself, when as a believer you're being deprived of yourself, you want to, on the outside, show everyone not that you're being deprived, that you're suffering, but you want to do the exact opposite. What you instead want to do is you want to show them that this is the greatest day that you have joy, that you're full of peace, that it's a good day. That's what Jesus is saying. Do the exact opposite. Show them that the believer is the only one. This doesn't make sense to the world. That when things are going bad, maybe even when we suffer for Jesus, that that is not the worst thing that could happen. But we find joy and peace in knowing we're in the Lord's will and we're submitting ourselves to Him and we're at peace with all of that so we can have joy even when everything around us is, is crumbling or hurting. This is just a small picture of that. You're, you're depriving yourself physically. You're hurting. Maybe you're hungry. And Jesus says, but you don't put that on a billboard. You ever done? I, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. When, uh, when something bad has happened to me, or when I've gone through something, this is human nature, even for the believer. I want everyone to know how much I've suffered for Jesus. If I had the money and Hollywood let me, I would take out a billboard just outside the seminary so everyone knew how spiritual uh, Dr. Hughes was. And that's what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is saying do the opposite. You don't 
broadcast. You don't use these slight passive-aggressive ways to let everyone know how spiritual you are. He said, you hide it. The guy that I wrote my dissertation on, is he was, he was talking about preaching, he said, uh, it's a point of art to conceal art. He was talking about, you don't go in the pulpit to show everybody how smart you are. You go into the pulpit to give them Jesus. I think that applies here. Jesus is saying, you don't fast so that everyone will know that you're fasting. When you fast, you try to hide it because it's before the Lord, and you just give people that, stalk, that calm, steady, joyous disposition that we should always have in Christ. Now, the question that we might ask, and maybe this is where the rubber meets the road, why did Jesus change it? Why did Jesus change something that was connected to the Day of Atonement, that they had methodized for every part of their life? Why does Jesus change it? I think that he doesn't say. I think there's a few reasons why. Maybe the reason why, we've already hinted at one of them, but maybe the reason why is because the Day of Atonement was, was corporate. All of Israel was doing that together, but fasting here, as it relates to our walk with the Lord, is individualistic. So it's not that the whole community is doing it together, you're doing it by yourself. So in other words, on the Day of Atonement, everyone should have known everyone's fasting. You already knew that. But here he's saying if you make a public or private decision to fast, it's not a community decision, it's an individual decision. So don't broadcast it. I think another reason why is maybe for sheer shock value. You may not know that about Jesus. Jesus occasionally would make these shocking pronouncements. He would take something and completely flip it on its head. Like take for a moment the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's not shocking to us. It was shocking to them. He, in some ways, took the person that would have been the least person in that culture to be considered the hero. And he made him the hero. Kind of the same way with the widow giving her might. She's the one that should have actually been receiving from the coffers. And Jesus makes her the hero. So Jesus here, for shock value, he says something that was the complete opposite of what they're doing. They're fasting, not anointing their head, and making themselves look more gloomy. Jesus says, but not you. When you fast, do everything you can to conceal it to the point of washing yourself and anointing your head and displaying this joyous and joyful disposition. Maybe there's a third reason. And of all of that I said, this is the one that I like the most. I don't know that it's evidenced in Scripture here, but this is the one I like the most. Could it be because of what we've just said? <laughs> yes. Our salvation also was messy and bloody. But it wasn't annual. It's not ongoing. If you are through faith in Christ in Him, it's done, it's sealed, it's stamped over, you are redeemed, and Jesus will never have to go to the cross again. Jesus doesn't die daily. Jesus doesn't die annually. That blood that He spilt is over, and it's covered sins for all eternity. And when we see Him again, it won't be on a cross, and it won't be Him coming back to die for our sins. He's done that. It will be Him coming back to reveal Himself as the ruling King. So listen, our redemption is serious, but it's also joyous. It's joyful. So maybe Jesus in us and now in, in Him and understanding the, dif the difference in how our redemption is accomplished, He changed it because the Christian of all people should understand that. And what's the result of all this? What do we see in the result of all this? Well, when you do this, your Father, verse 18, who is in secret. There's, a, there's an emphasis all the way through. is Man's in public, but God's in secret. It's probably the reference to that room that Jews had in their houses that was referred to as the storeroom where they kept their religious artifacts and even their temple, the things they would use to worship in the temple. 
And what Jesus is indicating is that's where actually God should be. Not that you keep him in there and lock him away, but what's the most valuable, the most valuable assets they had that they would put in that room? And Jesus is saying, what's the most valuable asset you have? It's God himself. So that God who's in secret, and also maybe a reference to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel where David is chosen as king, and Samuel is seeing everything on the outside, and there's one other, he's the youngest, he's the runt of the litter, and he's in the field, and Samuel and Jesse are thinking, couldn't be him. God says, go get him. Because man sees what? Man sees all this. But what does God see? The heart. That which is in the secret place. And the one who's in the secret, and the one who sees in secret, inside you, will know what you're really doing and know why you're doing it. And he's the only one that can really reward you anyway. Pay in full what you are owed, let me say it this way, in Christ and in his righteousness. That's what Jesus is talking about here. What a wonderful picture this paints. So just bear with me. Our aim must be having our hearts seen and recognized by God in our fasting and acts of devotion to God. Let me make just a general statement here. So the, the, the believer's concern when they're fasting or when they're suffering or deprived of anything should be that God and not man sees and knows. Let me make four quick applications as it relates to fasting. And then I'll make the general applications that you have on your worship guide as it relates to hypocrisy. Here's four that aren't on your sheet. Just bear with me for a moment. Number one, fasting is a biblical concept. It is assumed that the believer is going to have times. It's not prescribed like on a regular basis every Monday and Thursday, but the Bible assumes fasting. Depriving yourself of food, depriving yourself of something to focus on the Lord. For the believer in the church, though, though, however, number two, it appears most of the time in the Bible it is employed for a person that's going to be doing gospel ministry to prepare themselves for gospel ministry or for the church to use in selecting others for gospel ministry. I'm not saying it's all it can be used for. That's what we see. Number three, when you do fast and you're depriving yourself, the only person that can really re reward you for that is the Heavenly Father. And the only person that you should care that really sees is the Heavenly Father. Can I go a step further? Because perhaps this is a picture of the Christian in the world understanding. I, I think to some extent it is an understanding of what Jesus said when Satan came to him and said, I know you're hungry. Make that stone, uh, turn that stone into a loaf of bread. And Jesus says, by the way, quoting the Old Testament, but it is written... Ultimately, man's needs aren't satisfied by bread. But by what? And from whom? From every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, from God himself. And so the believer, when they do fast, they're in some way showing that this world really has nothing, nothing to offer me anyway. And the person that I'm concerned about, and the person that I trust, number four, regardless of how I'm suffering, regardless of how I'm deprived, is God. And I trust him. I know we're out of time, but let me paint this picture very quickly because I think this is a great example. So yesterday, I got home. I taught a class yesterday morning. got home yesterday afternoon, and we were just kind of trying to relax. And my son started playing with, Alex started playing with Kate. She's to that age where they can run around, and it usually ends with her being hurt more times than not, you know, because he's bigger than her and quite a bit stronger than her, and she's just not, she's got, 
Her vocabulary is unbelievable. The physical things are not so well developed in her life at this juncture. And so they were running. They ran into our bathroom. Alex slammed the door, and I, I was afraid it was her. And he just begins to very calmly but loudly shout, Mom and I, Mom, Dad, come here, hurry, come here. And so I'm like, I don't know. Kate got hurt, but I'm just trying to relax. And what is it, son? You come to us. No, you got to come to me. So finally, I get up and I tell Holly, I'll go check. And I walk around the corner. I open the bathroom door. And you can tell this is staged. He has sprawled himself out with his feet on the bathtub and his head laid back on the floor. And then he starts crying. He wants me to know how bad he got hurt when he ran to the bathroom, slammed the door, and fell. He wants to make sure that that's broadcast. And I know that. Jesus here, it's like we're that little boy. And it's okay that our father knows, knows that. But we're staging things so that everyone else sees it. And will pat us on our head or feel bad for us or tell us how spiritual we are. And God is saying in your practice of righteousness, and you're understanding your relationship with me, not only is that not necessary, but it's not helpful. So instead, here's three applications as it relates to our hypocrisy. I'll go through these quickly. Number one, hip hypocrisy ro robs us of spiritual reality. I'll explain what I mean by that. If you connect all the dots here, we must not substitute reputation for character, mere words for prayer, or our money for heart devotion to God. It's not your reputation that matters. God will take care of that. It's your character. Number two, hypocrisy robs us of spiritual reward. How many of us would really want to sacrifice or substitute the reward that only God can give me or me growing in Christ's likeness for the empty praises of men, the hollow, shallow praises of men? But that's exactly what we do. Our spiritual life, when we do this, our spiritual life becomes hollow and empty. And then finally, it also robs us, hypocrisy robs us of spiritual influence. Now, what in the world do I mean by this? Well, here's what I mean by this. If we act this way, the likelihood that we will actually ever be the conduit or, or, or vessel that God uses to actually point someone to and teach someone about himself is, is improbable to impossible. Think the Pharisees here for a moment. The amazing thing about the Pharisees is they had become so defiled even though their life was given to religious things, they weren't, or weren't capable and actually weren't helping anybody. Even those that highly respected them, even those that held them in high regard, they weren't actually helping, but in reality they were hurting them. We need to make sure that, in fact, we do know Jesus. We have faith in Him and we know the Father through our relationship with the King that He won for us on the cross and that He guaranteed for us in His resurrection. And we need to make sure that as we worship him, whether that's private or devotionally, we understand we're not doing it before men. I love what A. Plummer said about this entire passage of Scripture. He said basically this. He said, Christian character, the light of Christian character, will shine bright before men and win glory to God without the aid of public, watch this, without the aid of public advertisement. He went on to say, ostentatious religion, ostentatiously parading it before the people, ostentatious religion may have its reward here, but it will be given none from God. May we be those that will divorce ourselves, will separate ourselves from the picture of the hypocrite and our understanding of our righteousness 
and in our understanding of our worship in God and be those that are truly worshiping God through Christ in truth and in spirit.